just so many business podcasts out there. How can I possibly know where to begin? Here at Intrepid Business, we are about stripping away all of the usual boring fluff and instead focus on showcasing real people doing real business, achieving amazing things. The ones truly changing the world, the instigators making a dent, the people changing how we do sales and marketing, leading innovation, the people redefining leadership. But who are these people? Why do they do what they do? How do they do what they do? Find out on Intrepid Business. And now, here are your hosts. Good morning and welcome back to Intrepid Business. I am your host, Todd Schneck. Promises to be a very interesting conversation. I can't get enough dialogue and conversation going on this show about how to sell better and how to impact these business opportunities that we all come across. Uh, this promises to be a fun conversation. Say hello to my guest. His name is Hamish McKenzie. He is the co-founder of McKenzie Pitch Partners and is the author of a new book called Pitch, What You're Not Doing Makes All the Difference. So Hamish, welcome to the show. Hi, Todd. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for making time to join me. I know you're very busy and I appreciate you stopping by. Hamish, uh, before we get into a conversation around this great new book, take a quick second and inform the audience a bit about you, your background and your company. Sure. You could summarize my background in two words, and that is banking and consulting. I worked in banking for 14 years, woke up one morning and thought, do I want to be a banker for the rest of my life? And uh, woke up and thought, let me go and find a personality. So I found a company called Rogen, actually. And back in the day, in 93, Rogen were famous because they helped Sydney do the consulting behind Sydney winning the Olympic Games. So even though I joined that company in 97, four years after they did the consultation, I'd like to think I'm absolutely responsible for Sydney winning the Olympic Games. But in that business, what Rogan did, they would get business people and teach them how to train and consult. And that's where I learned a lot of my consulting and pitching experience. I worked with them for about five years. I was fortunate. You can probably detect from my accent that I'm Australian. So after working in Sydney and Melbourne, I then worked in London and then got transferred over to Canada. And about, well, let's see, 2002, 2001, 2002, I got a great opportunity to work on a very mega pitch involving billions of dollars with American Express and three other joint venture companies. And we were successful. And the typical consultant thing happened where they said, come and work for us for a six-month contract. And six years later, I got out and I developed myself as an independent contractor. And that's where I built my business, which is now McKenzie Pitch Partners. And we're just a boutique consultancy. Put quite simply, we help our clients win business. And that is by giving them process advantage and helping turn the process of winning business, the chaotic process of winning business into some sort of control. So, Todd, I, I trust that gives you a reasonable background. It does. And my goodness, you do get around. So uh, exciting career. You know, all right. So, hey, Michelle, let me just start with this. I always ask this question, so don't take offense. <laughs> it's always interesting to see how an author of a book on a, let's just say, a, a popular subject matter, how they answer this question. So if I was to go to Amazon right now and search for books on how to close deals and how to pitch and how to sell there's probably, what, hundreds of thousands of books, including mine. So I'm putting myself in that category. Why did the world need another book on this subject? Why was your book necessary? Todd, it's all about the theme, and that's you know what you're not doing that makes all the difference. I have had the opportunity to observe for almost 20 years now how people go about winning business. 
And I just want to clarify too, the book is really about how you go about specifically to win a business contract. It's not one of these generic sales books. I'm not an Anthony Robbins. I'm not a rah-rah guru kind of thing. And I'm not going to sort of promote pitch anything or anything. I'm not going to solve everybody's life and turn them into a different person. (laughs) Uh, But if you're a business person, you've got a prospective client that has a business need and you've got a good opportunity then to come in and give you what we in Australia would call a, a fair income chance. And that's what it's all about. So that's the premise behind the book. I have observed just some unbelievable things in terms of how people go about making some decisions. For example, early in the process that I'm consulting with people, I may ask them simple questions like, let's say, Todd, you know, you're going to pitch to win a major radio contract. And I say, okay, so how are you going to have the decision maker justify to his or her boss why they should select you? And in many instances, people will say, well, I don't know. I haven't thought about it. And it's kind of like, well, how could you not have thought about that? That's got to be your first starting point. I've had other instances where I've said to people, okay, so I understand you're responding to a request for a proposal, you're putting a proposal together, or you're putting a pitch together. Help me. What is it exactly that you're proposing? And I get uh, deer in the headlights and people just look at me and they don't know how to answer that question. And it's quite staggering. How can you not know exactly what it is you're proposing when people are preparing for a pitch? I get people who actually believe that a PowerPoint presentation, and they'll call it a PowerPoint presentation, When it's not a presentation, it's slides, it's visual aids, but they'll refer to it because they actually believe that's the presentation. You know, if business was only that easy that you could just do a PowerPoint deck and slides, you could just email it. You wouldn't actually have to get into person. So that gives you an idea of of some of the things that, that people don't do or they're just thinking, you know, the wrong way around. Yeah, well, gosh, you answered the question. I mean, we're going to talk about this flawed RFP process in a bit, and and I want to dive into these PowerPoint presentations that people think are pitches. I'm with you on that, and frankly, I'm guilty of that. And so I'm looking at myself in the mirror when I want to talk about that because I think a lot of us fall. But I think I'm not sure that that's necessarily our fault. I think that's what we now believe is the process, and that's part of what I think you're trying to communicate with when you that what you're not doing. I mean. I, tells me that there's plenty of things that are mission critical to this process that we're just not doing, not because we're idiots, it's because we just don't know any better, I think, which is the whole point of that. So talk about what other things that we're, quote, not doing. And I don't know if another way to ask that question is, I mean, what are the common mistakes that pitch teams make? I imagine there's a lot of mistakes that we're making that we don't even realize we're doing. Yeah, I can talk about a lot of small things, but let's start off with some macro things around what people aren't doing. There's a famous US industrialist called William Demings, and he's got a fantastic quote that says, if you can't describe what you're doing in a process, then you don't know what you're doing. I had the opportunity to work with a, let me say, a household name, household brand, a very big American company. And I was with the president of that company, and I was with 25 leaders of that company. And I did an exercise with them and I said, okay, you're all the leaders. Let's say, hypothetically speaking, you have to be in control of a pitch. You don't have to put it together, but you have to be kind of captain, coach, and you have to know what's going on. What I'd like you to do is I'd like you to email me the steps involved, the number of steps and what those steps would be. So think about this. You know, the one company, I got 25 different responses from 25 leaders to the extent one person was describing two steps another person was describing up to 11 steps. So just imagine how productive and how effective a company would be if I did that exercise and they said, uh, hypothetically speaking, they said, okay, we've got three steps. Step one is this, step two is this, and this is the third step. And it was all consistent. 
Just imagine the effectiveness of that. I find other examples of where organisations say do have a process, but it's a flawed process because it's based on a cut and paste principle. Mm. And think about that, you know, a cut and paste principle, you're providing an answer to a question that you haven't even read the question. That's the basis of cut and paste. Another notion is you get a lot of organisations that have areas that put together proposals. So think about this. You have areas who are not client-facing, yet they're putting together the argument as to why you should win the business. Todd, if you were about to propose to a prospective lovely woman to get married, would you outsource that job to someone else? (laughs) You know, I think not. The client-facing salesperson has got to be fundamentally involved. Well, a cut and paste scenario there is very dangerous. (laughs) Exactly. That proves your point. I mean, that's the point you're making is that that's that's what we're doing. Yeah. And I look forward to the opportunity to talk about the RFP process because that's another thing that because of all the things that have gone on in the world for the last, say, 10 to 20 years, we have to have a more authentic and transparent process that companies are responding to the RFP process not in a very efficient way at all. Well, what I want to get into after the break is where's the problem with the RFP process? Is the generation of the RFP itself flawed in how people are putting them out there? Or is how we're responding to it the problem? Or is it a combination of both? And we'll get into that when we return from this break. Hamish McKenzie will return after this break. We'll be right back. This program is brought to you by Miles Finch Innovation, LLC, a creative consultancy that is passionate about ideas, imagination, and facilitating a culture of innovation. Miles Finch Innovation helps companies navigate the messy territory of corporate innovation. They're strategic thinking partners who can help you get unstuck and identify creative solutions to your toughest challenges. They also love to train and speak on the subject of creative leadership. Learn more about how they can help you at milesfinchinnovation.com. Miles Finch Innovation. Idea-centric. Strategically driven. Humanly conscious. All right. I'm back with Hamish McKenzie, co-founder of McKenzie Pitch Partners and the author of a new book, Pitch, What You're Not Doing Makes All the Difference. So, Hamish, let's continue that conversation around that flawed RFP process. You heard what I teed up before the break. Uh, is the problem in the creation of the RFP in the first place or how we're responding to it or both? I think, Todd, it's something that has been institutionalized. And I think the people that are issuing the RFPs could be doing it much more effectively. I think the organizations that are responding to RFPs could be responding in a much better way. And let's look at some of the fundamentals of it. You know, RFP. So isn't it funny that RFP is almost now an accepted word rather than an abbreviation. So you get people saying, oh, gee, I'm really busy at work. I'm responding, you know, I'm working on an RFP. Well, the simple fact of the matter is they're not working on an RFP. What they're doing is they're actually working on the response to an RFP. And a lot of people actually forget what RFP actually means, and it means request for proposal. So what they should be doing is saying, oh, I'm actually working on a proposal. We've got an opportunity to respond to an RFP, so I'm putting a proposal together. Now, as anybody who's had anything to do with an RFP, they'll know that RFP these days are pretty much, it'll say something along the lines of, you flick through the RFP and you find the bit that really matters, which is details where where the provides the guidance to the proposal. And it'll say something like, you know, in your proposal, please include at a minimum answers to these questions. What it doesn't do, it doesn't say whatever you do, only, only answer these questions because it is still a request for proposal. 
And I challenge everybody, you know, you look up the definition of proposal and it'll be along the lines of solution to a need or solution to a problem. But when you look at some of these proposals that are issued in response to a request for proposal, you couldn't find what that solution is because all they're doing is providing answers to the questions. Now, you've got procurement people and you've got commercial buyers issuing these RFPs and clearly what they're doing is commoditizing the buying process because they're using the RFP process as a negotiation tool. So they're trying to put everybody into the same level playing field. So they're commoditizing you. What I say is don't let them commoditize you. Why would you want to let them commoditize you? So whatever you do, absolutely provide a proposal, provide a solution to the problem. So what we recommend our clients is a very simple structure that tells a story around a proposal. And if so, if you think about this, Todd, as in terms of a structure, and that is your needs, our solution, addressing RFP requirements, or you could call that third area RFP compliance, because it tells a good story. Because first of all, it said, you know, Todd, let me confirm I understand your needs, why you're going out to market to procure and purchase some product. Secondly, when I've done that, I'm going to outline what our solution is to meet your needs and convince you that they will actually meet your needs. And lastly, to be compliant with the process you've issued, I'm going to provide you answers to the question that have been detailed in the RFP. Now, if you think about it, it's got those three areas. What you could do, you could almost tear off the third section, and that would be the normal proposal that you'd put in. But immediately, you've differentiated yourself by those first two areas by highlighting your needs and our solution. And one last point to note, Todd, when I advise my clients to do that, and when I get them to actually just forget about the RFP for a minute, stop and actually think, what is the client's situation? What are their needs? What other needs can you suggest to them? And what is the actual solution you provide? You'll actually find when they come to responding to the questions that it doesn't take them very long to respond to those questions at all. I'm silently laughing, Hamish, because I mean, I, I've done it, and I imagine most of you listening to this have done this too, where that process of responding to the RFP is a mere act of scouring every word to say, what questions are they asking that I have to answer? And you completely ignore the main thrust of, yeah. of what that's all about. I mean, we've all done it. And frankly, I shouldn't be laughing. It's pathetic. <laughs> but and I guess making you aware of the fact that that's what you're doing. And that comes back to your tagline of what you're not doing, which is probably the real meat and, meat and potatoes of what that process is really calling for. Boy, it's going to get me thinking quite a bit here. Todd, you're absolutely right. And this is the scary notion. You know, you put me into any company, and if I did an audit on their RFP responses, I would say, gee, greater than 75%, 90% of times, they're just answering questions and they're not really providing a proposal. Different companies will get clever and they'll group the responses together and try and turn it into a bit of a story. I've even had clients where I've gone in and suggested, why don't you start up and just reconfirm with the client the needs? And I've had companies come back at me and say, oh, are you kidding? Would you actually put an understanding of needs in there? And this is what got me passionate about writing the book because you think about how flawed some of the commercial business is, you know, particularly in the day that we live in. And it's like, let's get back to some basics. You know, clearly, if a client's going to issue an RFP, they've got a problem or they've got a need, they want some services. Okay, so what's the best services that's going to best meet their needs? And you know what? It really is at the end of the day, is that simple conceptually. Yeah. And I'm thinking of scenarios where I may respond to that RFP in the Hamish McKenzie fashion, and there may be an organization or two who say, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. all I asked for was answers to these questions, to which I would say, well, you know what, then I'm not sure I want to work with you. If, if you're going to be that 
anal about me following exactly every specification you request. Well, I'm not sure that that's going to be a good fit for us. That thought has crossed my mind too. So let, can, I, can I just make a comment on that? Tom? Yeah, yeah. I've had the opportunity to work with many global procurement managers and, and I've run this theory by them. And you'd be surprised that purchasers and procurement people, at the end of the day, they are focused on value and they are accountable to shareholder value. For their clients. They'll admit that there'll be some person running the process that is in the basement of some building counting paper clips and making sure that you adhere to the process. Absolutely. But if you act in absolute earnest and ethical behavior to want to focus on what's important to the client and the stakeholders of that business, and that client doesn't want to respond, I couldn't agree with you more. Is that the organization they actually want to work for? Because I'd be tempted, if I was a salesperson and I was getting that treatment, I'd go to my CEO and I'd get my CEO to call the other CEO and say, my salesperson wanted to find out your company's needs so we could provide the optimal solution ultimately for your shareholders. And you refuse to give us that. And I think I find too many salespeople, sales organizations, almost sycophantic to use a word to the RFP process and they forget about what's important to the client and to the shareholder of that client. Well, Hamish, I'm going to steal your script there. That's brilliant. My bigger worry is that there are sales managers that won't let sales reps do that. I mean, I want to be sure, I mean, to to empower them to be able to say to their management to say, look, this opportunity is not affording us the chance to really shine here and demonstrate value here. I don't know this is worth pursuing. I fear there are some managers that wouldn't be supportive of that. And that's another problem that we would probably need to talk about. So absolutely. There's a lot of managers that wants you to pitch for anything. And it builds a culture of salespeople hiding behind RFPs. So it's a scary notion because you confront a salesperson and they're proactively responding to an RFP. They've never met the decision makers before, never had anything to do with the client before, and they honestly think they've got a chance. You know, I spoke at a conference a while back. I was on a panel and I had a guy ask a question and he put his hand up and he said, how do you get access to more RFPs? And I had to sort of say, look, I'm sorry, mate, I'm Australian, so I don't hold back any punches. But, you know, what's your objective here? Do you want to win business or do you want to respond to RFPs? Right. And I I said, get some meetings, go and take some clients out for lunch and, and start asking some questions about their needs. Forget about the RFP. The other thing of yours I'm going to steal is this RFP compliance notion. That's what we're talking about here. I mean, you're, yeah. you're, you're running a sales organization that's really a compliance organization. And when you do that, that's when you build this culture where a cut and paste mentality begins to thrive, right? I mean, that's the problem with that. Absolutely right. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Oh, interesting stuff. You say in the book that this RFP process does turn uh, pitch teams into <laughs> passive question answers. That, that's no, no doubt about it. What you outlined a few minutes ago was, in essence, the Hamish model, which is this pitch SSP process. And you went through it, I think. I don't know the audience necessarily understood that that's what you were doing. So once again, if you don't mind, just kind of walk through that model of what the pitch SSP process is. Sure. So SSP simply stands for strategy, story, presentation. And Todd, the the scary thing about it is it just makes sense because you think about it. Your first step, and I encourage everybody to think about this, the book can give you an instruction manual from beginning to end of a major pitch. Even if you just looked at the book at a conceptual notion of understanding strategy, story, presentation along this line, you know, in your strategy, first of all, understand is why should the client choose you? And that's got to be based on the fact that individuals make decisions, not companies. So what are the needs of the individuals and what solution I'm putting forward? And in one clear phrase, think newspaper heading, 
you know, what the answer to that question is. For example, I worked on a pitch, I can't mention the name of it, but uh, involved billions of dollars in terms of taxpayer monies. And it was as simple as it's all about the balance between innovation and certainty. It was a technology pitch, but the government were very nervous about being too innovative and making mistakes. So the whole pitch was built around this argument. The reason why you will select this syndicate is because we will provide you comfort around the balance between innovation and certainty. And then the pitch developed around that. So that was step one, strategy. Step two is plan your story. And look, there's any number of ways that you can structure a story. My default structure is along the lines of what I've already suggested. If you think along this is one, your needs, two, our solution, three, making it happen, because it simply tells a good pitching story because the story works along the lines of, you know, let me confirm I understand your needs. When I've done that, I'll present what our solution is and prove to you that that solution will meet the needs. And lastly, I'll provide you some assurance around making it happen. And that is providing assurance that the solution will deliver to meet your needs. Now, that's a pretty complete story rather than a bunch of information. So then the last step, which many people tackle first, which is the wrong way to go, Mm. is then the presentation. And the presentation is all about an experience. It's not about a bunch of PowerPoint slides. It's about an experience because people are looking at you across the table and Todd, they're checking you out and say, do I want to work with that guy? How comfortable do they make me feel? So if you think about it, if you think about putting the whole process together, I've done my homework as to why I should win the business. I've structured an effective story to tell it. So now I'm going to tell it with conviction and enthusiasm and passion. And could I just encourage everybody, presentation skills are great, but presentation skills are not going to help you win business. If we've got time, I've got a great story to to tell you about that, which is a classic scenario where people have their wrong attention on presentation skills, but it's really a pitch methodology people need. Yeah, well, please share it. Okay, so I worked with a... And I've got to be careful here. I can't say the name of the company. Let's call it a professional services organization, a very technical professional services organization, one of the major four global players in their field. And from the initial work I've been doing, I know that the salespeople were not listening to their clients enough. They weren't understanding their needs. So throughout the sales process, they were using every opportunity to get in front of their client and essentially tell them how good they were and just keep presenting ideas and thoughts and solutions without really stopping and listening. In terms of their presentation skills ability, I would give them about a five out of 10. Okay. So they weren't great, but they weren't bad. So if you think about it, they were doing an okay job at telling their clients in a presentation that they didn't understand their needs. Now, I happened to observe in a major conference in Vegas where the president of the Americas of that company got up and said, well, what we need is we need presentation skills. So what that did All the branch managers in that meeting basically said, oh, we've got approval, we've got budget now to invest in presentation skills. So think of the bottom line outcome. The bottom line outcome is that now they can go and clearly articulate to their clients that they don't understand their needs and just make their whole situation worse than what it was because all they really had to do is stop and ask questions and start listening to their clients and determine their needs. And that's just a classic story that almost breaks your heart. Yeah, (laughs) it absolutely does. And in closing, uh, the line you said a few minutes ago, individuals make decisions, not companies. I think every salesperson out there ought to tack that sign on their wall and, and at eye level because when you understand that, that's when you begin to say, all right, well, then I do need to form this strategy. It's a human there. 
they respond to stories. And so I need to focus on that. That changes everything when you understand that you're trying to, you're not moving a company, you're moving an individual to action. And that, and that changes your whole point of view. And reiterating your comment on the SSP process and how most salespeople focus on the presentation first, that's when you fall into the trap again of this cut and paste mentality. And that's when you say, oh, it's all about how great my PowerPoint is. Yeah, <laughs> and, oh, exactly. and, and I've interviewed other people on the show that have done a whole book about how lousy most PowerPoint presentations are. And so you put those two together and you understand why maybe you struggle in closing yeah. business. Well, Hamish, this has been a great conversation. You and I have a lot more to uncover on this. Um, one final question, though, before I uh, close. Sure. Obviously, the kind of deals that Hamish is working are billion-dollar deals, and so I can understand how this model is very effective when thinking about a complex sale. But I imagine there's lessons to be pulled here, even for a small to medium-sized business that may not be having as intricate a sales process, or maybe not even responding to an RFP because they're dealing directly with the CEO of another small company. The same lessons apply, though, yeah? Uh, without a doubt. And, and Todd, I've had the opportunity to work on you know some of those grandiose billion, million dollar deals, but down to the entrepreneurial small startup companies, you know, a couple of things. And then I've got another example, just some of these small companies, so many small entrepreneurial companies can't even articulate what their company actually does. Uh, And I recently had my team at a cocktail function, four of us went out and surveyed the crowd. We came back after talking to 13 entrepreneurs, only two of them did we really understand what their business actually was. Uh, We broke it down. I think there were five that was some app thing. There were other people that were just basically talking about how good they think they are. And I always say the same thing. You know, if you want to go and promote how good you think you are, go and do the pitch to your mum because she'll give you that reassurance, but it's not going to happen in business. So that's what I find with the small startup companies. But even, you know, another dilemma that's creeping into North America at the moment, Todd, and that is graduating university students trying to get a job. And essentially an interview is exactly the same as a pitch. And, you know, we're in the technological age and they're not used to the importance of pitching, but they're pitching to Gen X, baby boomers in some instances, and they're so reactive. There's a great opportunity for someone who wants to tackle that market to coach university students graduating on how they pitch and turn a job interview into a pitch Mm -hmm. because, you know what, that's where it all starts. I love it. Well, Hamish, I hate to say it, we are out of time. Before I let you go, how can people contact you? Should they have questions? Where can they learn more about McKenzie Pitch Partners? And most importantly, where can they get their hands on a copy of Pitch? Yeah, look, I'd, I'd just recommend to go on our website, mckenziepitch.com, and that'll have all the details on there. All right. Hamish McKenzie, co-founder of McKenzie Pitch Partners and the author of the new book, Pitch, What You're Not Doing Makes All the Difference. Hamish, a real pleasure to have you. Thanks for stopping by and joining us. Thank you very much, Todd Cheese. All right. Well, that wraps this conversation. Again, on behalf of my guest, Hamish McKenzie, I am Todd Schnick. We'll see you next time on Intrepid Business.